0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab Episode 809 for Monday, April 6th, 2020. <laughs> Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Guide, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We mix them all together. We add in our own questions, our own tips, our own cool stuff found. The goal is we mix it together into an agenda that allows every single one of us, you, me, him, To each learn at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include PDF Pen 11 at SmileSoftware.com slash podcast. Mint Mobile at MintMobile.com slash MGG. And MailRoot at MailRoot.net slash MGG. We will talk more about those in a little while. But for now, here, right here still here in Durham New Hampshire I'm Dave Hamilton and here in Fairfield Connecticut this
1: is John F. Braun how you doing today Mr. John F. Braun good and I'm testing my camera gamut here by um, uh, wearing a Hawaiian shirt if you're watching the video if you're listening you're probably not going to see the shirt unless you have superpowers or something
0: that's true that's true. Yeah, we are recording video, as we mentioned last week, and it will be it's live streamed right at the same time that we live stream at uh, the, the show every week, which you can join the calendar at Mackie slash calendar if you want to do that. Uh, and then also it'll be published to our Facebook and YouTube pages as well if you want to watch it after the fact. And we put the YouTube video in the in the article as well. So that. You know, at macobserver.com, you can see it. I want to take a quick minute though. Um, We had an issue last week where we fell off the iTunes or Apple Podcasts store. No one knows why, not even the people at Apple Podcasts. But when we came back up, it looked like we had lost like a year of our reviews. Uh, It turns out that most, if not all of them, came back. But I posted on Twitter and I said, oh, folks, Would you please just, you know, go add some reviews out there. And so many of you did. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you haven't, of course, you can go to Mac reviews and go leave us a five star review. But of some of the uh, five star reviews that we got, stooms says a longtime listener, been listening almost since the beginning. You can't do better than to spend your time with these two. Thank you. Walker, New York Ranger writes excellent. Started listening way back in 2012 when I got my first Mac so I could learn what's what. And I've listened every week since uh grover scorner writes best mac podcast hands down well thank you grover that's awesome dave and john are amazing dual uh providing welcome technical advice to listeners questions new found os 10 and ios hints reviews of new apple and third-party products and generally anything that an apple enthusiast wouldn't want to miss this is my go to podcast every week and there's many many more you can see them of course if you go to com slash reviews. Thank you so much. We'll read some more next week. I just don't want to spend the whole episode reading because we've got stuff to do. In fact, we're going to start with some cool stuff found. That worked for you, John? Absolutely. Sweet. Uh, all right. So, Tom uh, starts us off. Tom makes a cool stuff found and tells us that it's back. He says, you've been kind enough to mention Flame, my Bonjour browser, on the show a few times. I thought you might like to know that thanks to the changes in the latest version of Xcode and Catalina, I've been able to update the iOS version of Flame to also run on the Mac. I also added dark mode and multi-window support to the iPad app and made it generally much nicer on large screens, if That's your thing. The Mac version requires a very recent version of Catalina, but that's the trade off I had to make. I would never have had time to support it otherwise. Uh, And the last version of Flame for Mac is a 32 bit app and was last released when Mac OS 10.3 was a thing. So we will put links to all of this, of course, in the show notes at MacGeekab.com because that's what we do. But uh, that Flame has been a, a thing that we've loved for years, huh, John?
1: Uh, It's always interesting, especially when you're in a a foreign or public network Mm. to run something like that and see all the people there. I do that every now and then. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, you know, I was looking another tool that I like, which uh, takes a different angle, but um, Thing is also another very good one to see what's on your network, though that's more an IP-based rather than Bonjour. Um, The only thing that made me sad is I was searching and apparently they only have a command line version still on the Mac, but maybe we'll see a desktop
0: version of thing. Cause I, I find it very useful. I would, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, is there a browser version? I don't know how much you can do with the browser version of thing. So, Hmm. Oh, I didn't know that like
1: a browser plugin or something. Okay. I'll have to have to check it out. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think so. I think so. So, um, Well, just a web interface. I thought there was a thing. There is a thing web interface. I'm not sure if it's as full featured as what you can get on iOS, though. Okay. All right. Uh, All right. Let's go to Bob. And Bob tells us, he says, uh, you guys, mostly Dave, keep bringing up how great clipboard managers are. He says, I never bothered to try one. A year or so ago, he says, I got the free copy clip. It was okay, and I used it, but it wasn't always convenient. Not long ago, Better Touch Tool added a clipboard manager. You can bind a trackpad gesture, a keyboard shortcut, a mouse button or magic mouse gesture to trigger the Better Touch Tool clipboard managers interface. I created a magic trackpad four finger swipe down to bring up the better touch tool clipboard manager. And since I'm already on the magic trackpad, I just move the cursor to the entry I want and double tap to paste it. I've also added some keyboard shortcuts to select and paste older entries. So he's got command option control one, two, three and four for the latest and then four most recent entries. I like this idea. If you remember the order that you copied things, now you can just paste them out without even having to bring up the interface. That's pretty good. Uh, he says, I stopped there as chances are, I would barely remember the fourth, let alone the fifth or the sixth. Very, very cool. Thank you. Uh, thanks for sharing this with us, Bob. And we'll put a link to better touch tool in the show notes. Of course, because that's, um, that's what we do. Very cool. Thanks, man. Are you yet using a clipboard manager? Mr. John F Brown? No, though I
1: did download this because apparently they have a way where you can customize the uh touch bar.
0: So um, I'm still fiddling All right. with that right. Yeah, that's right. I forgot you're a tu- uh, so are you finding yourself using the touch bar much John?
1: Oh, absolutely. Like for logging in using touch ID. I think that's very handy
0: So, and touch also for ID- purchasing. Yeah, I'm curious. I, I, I should have clarified my question um, because I have the MacBook Air, which has the touch ID sensor, but but not the full touch bar. So I'm curious if you're using the touch bar portion versus just the touch ID sensor, because I agree the touch ID sensor is life changing. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for setting volume, for setting brightness, uh I find okay. it useful. Um and it's also cool if you buy something and they support um Apple Pay through the browser, um when it, it it's time to purchase, it'll come up in big red letters saying uh press here to pay hundred whatever dollars. Cool. And then you touch ID and then you, you bought it just like on on my iPhone. So uh, yeah, some some people diss it, but um sure. I don't know. I find a a lot of times what they show isn't, you know, of interest, but, um, right. Every now and then I find something nice.
0: That's good. That's good. Cool. Yeah. I'm, I, when I tested that MacBook Pro last year, it it had the touch bar, the, the revamped 13 inch low end, you know, quad core MacBook Pro. Uh, it had the touch bar. And I was like, yeah, this is cool. I mean, it, it is cool how you drag things down to it and all of that stuff, but, um, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, it didn't, it didn't get right into my workflow. So, um, speaking of which, I don't have a whole lot to say yet because I just got it set up uh, the other day. But uh, I do have one of the new MacBook Airs, the 2020 MacBook Airs that uh, I have on loan from Apple that I'm testing, and so we'll we'll catch up on that. But I I will say I will not bury the lead here. That keyboard, it's a nice change. So I think that's good. All right, Uh, let's keep on keep on moving with our cool stuff found here, John. And let's go to Russell Russell says uh, I was looking for a way to use Airplay to play an Apple Music subscription to my stereo as I was struggling to install uh, an app on my Raspberry Pi called Shareport Sync. Searching through the comments to find solutions, someone mentioned a, a Raspberry Pi app called Volumio, V-O-L-U-M-I-O. 30 minutes later, including download time, hunting for an SD card and updating Etcher, I had a Raspberry Pi plugged into my stereo, streaming music from my Mac over AirPlay. The Volumio package makes the Pi into an appliance. There's no need to dink around with Raspbian or anything like that. He says it's basically like any other IOT device. It creates its own Wi-Fi network that you point to with a web browser to configure it. And then you attach it to your network. He says uh, what I plan to use it for is barely an afterthought compared to all of Volumio's other functionality. You can point your web browser to it for a really full featured music player. Uh, you can use it to store and play your music collection. It has a web radio feature and more and more. He says it's all open source and doesn't seem to have a way to pay for it. At the end of the manual, they suggest you buy their iOS app for two dollars to provide a little support. Uh, I did, but I have no intention of using the iOS app. He said, but I bought it for support anyway. Looks like they have a subscription for additional premium services and I may uh, and and may sell some pre-configured appliances to use their software. So we'll link to Volumio, but that's outstanding. That's the that's what should exist like some way of you know a sub $50 solution to add airplay to an otherwise dumb speaker right that's what we need and Apple doesn't sell that right now I mean I know they sell their HomePod but that's if you've already got your setup and you just want to add airplay to it uh, this is you know and if it's as easy as he says and I I trust him Russell's written in a few times before uh, then there you go super easy pretty cool huh John
1: yeah, are they still selling the Airport Express? Because that's what I use for one of my airplays. I don't think so, John. I don't. I don't think so, so. I'm sure you can still find them used, but yes, yeah, that's right. And the Airport Express probably for you. costs, but this probably costs more, a little bit more than an airport. So. But the airport express was like under under hundred bucks. I think when I bought right. it or hundred right. bucks, no, this right? would cost
0: less than an express. I mean, you can get a raspberry Pi, if, I think for like 50 bucks mm. or maybe even a little less. So,
1: and then, and then the, apps yeah, for just offer that as a solution. If you can get a good deal on an airport express, mm. that's uh,
0: a, oh no, I agree. Stream your audio. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Uh, we talked last episode about using different, uh, using the Eufy cam, as an RTSP uh, camera for your uh, surveillance station on your Synology. Well, Ralph writes in and says that Reolink cameras work fine with surveillance station, 2. He says, great quality cameras. Uh, they're sold by Amazon. He says, I have five connected and up and running. Uh, I, I took a look at them. I have not used them myself, but the reviews and and everything about these seems pretty good. So if you're looking for cameras for surveillance station, uh, Reolink link is also available so the link for that is also in the show notes right good john cool yes cool uh all right and one last cool stuff found uh for me i've been you know i i mess around with all kinds of different mesh wi-fi stuff because it's what i do and i have some wi-fi six mesh stuff here so that's coming but the um this is not Wi-Fi six, but the Unify. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of the Unify stuff because it's super. It's like easy, but also geeky, and you can tweak it, and it's high quality, and goes far and fast, and all of that good stuff. And their new, uh, relatively new Beacon HD Mesh Point plugs right into an outlet, four by four dual band, MIMO, all of that stuff. It's you know 802.11 AC Wave two, so it has all of that super fast links up with the network and it's a nice $129 way to add yet another mesh point to your unify setup. Um, and it, it I like it, it does take up two outlets when you plug it into a, a wall outlet, but it, it sits flush against the wall. It's pretty cool. Um, So it, you know, worth, it's worth checking out. Uh, there you go. I like it. That's good. We've got it downstairs in our house and it really does kind of help to smooth out coverage and those, those harder to reach areas um obviously all wi-fi connected all that good stuff so good any thoughts on that john before we uh before we move on uh-oh no okay
1: there yeah, he I was, is. was shaking my head
0: no now that we have video no you I have to talk visual cues yeah visual cues are good it's good for us to see each other but but <laughs> the listeners still need to uh still need to hear us so All right. uh, If it's all I would like actually very much to talk about our first sponsor, if that works for you, Mr. Braun. Okay. All right. Look, when you want the very best in email security, spam protection, virus protection, phishing protection, malware protection and downtime protection. You do what we've just recently done. You go with MailRoot, who is our next sponsor here, because MailRoot focuses on just this. Anybody that's listened to this show for any length of time has heard me say one of the best technical business decisions I ever made was to stop running my own mail servers. And that's because running a mail server and especially running the filtering portion, which requires you to stay right on top of it, is a full time job. Good news. It's MailRoot's full-time job, right? They know what they're doing. They've been doing this for seven years, but their founder, Tom, I mean, he, he goes all the way back to the beginning of ARPANET1 in a UCLA science lab. This guy knows how to build distributed networks and deal with spam and all of those things beyond that. And so he started a company to do this, not just for himself, But for all of us, and it's fantastic as email comes in, it goes through all of their filters. But the best part is you get to know what's happening. It's not some black box. If it chooses to block something, you can see that it chose to block it. You can even get, you know, a digested notification once a day. You can get it 12 times a day if you want, telling you what it has blocked. And if there's something that it has blocked incorrectly, you can undo it. Try that anywhere else. Good luck, right? There's a difference between I've classified this as spam and I've completely blocked this from going to any of your boxes. MailRoot does both and lets you control both. More than that, MailRoot has downtime protection. Yeah, It shows you 30 days of clean mail in their web interface. So if something happens to your mail server, you can still go in their web interface and see the email that's come in. And that's a very important thing. So they're protecting you against all this stuff and downtime. You've got to check it out. Go to MailRoot.net slash MGG. This is where you want to go to get started. You get your free 30-day trial. No credit card required. MailRoot.net slash MGG. And our thanks to MailRoot for doing what they do for us and for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, you want to take us to JP? I'm going to take
1: it to JP. So JP says... Um, Or he sent a screenshot, and it was the uh, iPadOS 13.4 update, and he noticed one of the items in files is iCloud Drive folder sharing from the files app. Controls to limit access to people you explicitly invite, etc., etc. Do you think this means it's available on macOS as well? And you know what? I remember seeing something, I believe, in the 10.15.4 update that did mention that as well um that's the good news uh here's the bad news uh it's not entirely obvious how you do this (laughs) so if you want to do this um there's a nice support article called use icloud file sharing to share folders and documents with other icloud users and dave and i even tried it out so dave was being nice and decided to share with me and uh you know, I got an invite, and then we have a folder that we can both go to. And actually, uh, you know, when you drag something in there, um, usually it indicates the uh, the owner. Or in my case, if I look at a file that I dragged in there, it'll say me. It's like who who shared this? Me. Right. And then a couple other files from you said shared Dave Hamilton. So um, check that article out if you have the space and you want to share stuff with people, and they're also on iCloud and uh, um.
0: Thanks. Yeah, it's su- it's super easy. It 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 really did just work as well as as John described, and put things in. It w- one cool part we noticed it when I I created this. I share I sync my documents and desktop with iCloud. Right, I have that little checkbox turned on. Uh, when I created the folder to share with John, it was a folder in my Documents folder which is not in my you know iCloud drive folder on my Mac didn't matter it it shared it with John it for you I think John it put it in your iCloud drive folder by default, right? Yes and then you were able to move that to your documents folder and all the syncing followed along. It just has to be as we found thus far it has to be somewhere that is synced by iCloud though I wonder. Like, could I take this and put it somewhere that's not synced by iCloud? And would that still work? I mean, maybe? Let's see. I if think I, I tried that. If I put this in my... Oh, if I move it to my downloads folder, which is not shared or synced with iCloud, it says moving it will stop sharing on iCloud. Okay, so it's smart enough to uh, to pick that up. That's good. That's great. Sweet. Sweet. All right uh okay um uh, good on that one anything more to add it's there yes. it's there on my on my iphones and all that too It really it works great thanks for asking about it jp i don't i don't know you know we've we've already got so many folder sharing solutions i don't know that i would have how long it would have taken me to try that had had you not asked about it so it's good and it's it's super easy just share you we did it with or i did it with the um I created a folder, highlighted it, and then used the share icon in the toolbar of the Finder. I'm not sure. Could I right click on it and choose share? Yes, you can right click on it or control click on it and choose share add people. That's the key there is share add people. So um, just just remember that. So. All right. Uh, moving on to Doug. Doug brings us a question. Basically, he says, I have AT&T's one gigabyte, one gigabit fiber internet. They offer uh, a mesh box for 49 bucks that adds mesh capabilities to their router. What do you think of it? The advantage for me, he says, is that it works with my existing router and gateway. So a more generic question. Should I use my ISP's mesh offering? And if you're already using a router from your ISP and you are basically happy with its routing capabilities, but you need some additional meshing, it's worth trying. I mean, the your your cost delta to just add one mesh point from your ISP is relatively low compared to what you might pay for, um you know, a full mesh setup, of course, right, because you're not buying all the extra stuff. You're just buying the one mesh point that you need. And, of course, support if you're using your ISP stuff there you're already going to rely on them for some level of support just because that's how it works. And so adding that, I, I think it's worth trying. I mean, you know, for he said it was forty nine bucks when I looked on the web, it said it was thirty nine. So that that's even better. Um, no reason you shouldn't try it. My guess most ISPs are usually pretty good about return policies, too. So uh, check it. But my guess is that if you get this and it doesn't work, you get all your money back anyway. Uh, so I I would I for 40 bucks. Yeah. Go. Sure. What do you think, Mr. Braun? Why not? Why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. What's yeah. the worst that could happen? Yeah, the worst is that it just doesn't do what you need. Yeah. And then, and then you go, you know, you move on. Yeah. Cool. All right. Kevin. Uh,
1: Kevin. Yeah, take us to Kevin, please. All right. Kevin is a good one. Uh, for several years, the shared storage on my home network has been a pair of mirrored discs hanging off a spare Mac Mini. Those discs are five plus years old and almost full, so it's time to upgrade. I just bought a Synology DS-1019+, I think I have one of those too, and a stack of Iron Wolf drives to do the trick. We have three Macs in the house, and I plan to redirect their Time Machine backups to the new Synology. I recall a previous episode where you mentioned a trick to keep Time Machine backups from eventually using up all the space in the Synology, but I can't seem to find it. I found it. Um, does that involve disk quotas, separate shares? I'd like to limit the amount of Synology storage dedicated to Time Machines so I don't get caught. Thanks. Okay. Um, yeah, you pre- you pretty much covered the the, the major steps here. Um, so you create a shared folder to hold the Time Machine content. Um, I don't think you have to, but it just makes it easier to track things. Um, defining a user or users. So so in my case, I actually define two users. So I have one user called Time Machine Mac, Mac Pro and another called Time Machine Mac Mini. Um, and then as you suspected, yes. And then for each of those users. You set the quota because you probably, um, and I don't know, a rough guide here is I usually set the quota to be twice the size of the hard drive that I'm backing up from. So, um, yeah, yeah. but um, check it out. Um, It's called How to Backup Files from Mac to Synology NAS with Time Machine, and it goes into a bit more detail and actually has screenshots and all that, showing you all the steps you need to go through. But, yeah, I mean, it's an excellent way to deploy time machine and, and it does it pretty well it you know i mean you got to bounce around to three different three major
0: steps okay. but uh, yeah, but it's worked great for me <clears throat> yeah i yeah i i i've done i've done that for my time machine and i i create yeah i i do the exact same thing that you do i create a separate user for each computer and then that way you can quote it and, and it yeah works yeah Yeah, the only weird thing, now let me know if this happens
1: here. It's funny because on one of my machines, it actually shows the quota sizes when when I bring up the time machine. So on the mini here, yeah. So right now it says 563 gigs of two terabytes available. The only weird thing is that on my other machine, Dave, the MacBook Pro, even though I have the same quota defined, it shows these ridiculous sizes that are way larger. So I don't know if the File is corrupt, or if I should recreate it, I've restored from it, and everything seems to be still there. So, just thought I'd mention that because it's it's something one weird thing that I observe.
0: So, if that happens to you, I don't think it's it's a big deal. Say that again. Your Time Machine file is bigger than your drive.
1: Uh, When I go to Time Machine control panel, uh, uh, system preference, it shows X of Y available those numbers being you know yeah how much is used and how much is available the, the thing is those numbers don't match the quota i defined and i don't know why oh that's weird huh <clears throat> huh it should But if i look at the file on the synology itself the the size is you know something reasonable it, it's just not displaying it so i don't know if it's a bug in time machine or
0: yeah yeah oh yeah huh uh, but
1: otherwise yeah on. great solution
0: cool okay yeah, we'll have to uh, I'll have to dig into that. I don't know. Huh. All right. Yeah, right. I'll send you a screenshot so you can. Yeah, with. yeah, yeah. OK, cool. Yeah, we'll 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 dig in. That's what we do. Uh, all right. We a few episodes ago, we asked for your thoughts on how to track the shows that you are watching so that we don't forget what shows we're watching. And and that. Like, that's actually mattered more now than ever. We 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 changed this at home when we first talked about it. And once we get through all this, I'll explain the solution that we chose. Uh, But uh, because we've got a bunch of your comments here. But then our daughter came home from school because, you know, school is is closed and it's all remote. And now, like our TV watching habits have changed because we've got all four of us in the house all the time it's just how it is so it's even more important now so uh we'll go through some of your comments here and share various solutions There, near as i can tell there is no best one but uh you might find one that works for you and that's that's sort of the point so we will start with rob and rob says uh coming at this issue Uh, From one angle, there's a a piece of software called Channels DVR at GetChannels.com. He says, I haven't had a chance to fully set it up because I'm still playing around with the Plex DVR. But it is my understanding that Channels is unique in that it aggregates all of your subscriptions with the right hardware to schedule and capture not only over the air broadcasts and cable TV using tuners from someone like Silicon Dust, but also streaming services as well. It seems to have promise as potentially the holy grail of DVR. If you're willing to get your hands a little dirty and tinker with a solution that you build yourself. All right, cool. Well, we will put a link to that in the show notes. I haven't, I haven't dug into that one, but that sounds actually sounds very interesting It's like you said, a little bit of a, a broader, longer term solution. So that's pretty good. Uh, John, you picked up one from uh, from Jamie. Actually, you picked up a couple. You want to tell us about Jamie's? Uh, Oh, wait. No, it's not Jamie. Yeah. It's Zhang. Why did I put Jamie? No, I'm
1: looking at the oh. signature. <laughs> All right. So, sorry about that, Zhang. And uh, sorry about that, Jamie. Um... Hi, Dave and John. A great way to keep track of shows is sonar with two R's. While designed primarily to facilitate the download of television by whatever legal or non-legal means you choose. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. (laughs) It is fantastic for keeping track of television shows and can be used just for the sake of keeping track. All you do is add a show you're currently watching and it'll connect to the tvdb.com and it will subscribe you to data about that show, display you all the episodes in that series, description, show posters, as well as list future episodes. It can show you all of this via calendar views of daily, weekly, or monthly. It can even give you a constantly updated ICS file. So it's right there on your Mac or iOS calendar. Even better, it has great integration with Kodi, MB, Plex, Tracked, Growl, Pushbullet, Synology Indexer. Wow, I don't even know about half of those. <laughs> um and so many other handy ways of letting you know i have a show to watch it's multi-platform so for those who may not want it on their mac that can be installed on raspberry pi somewhere in the corner of your network and be on 24 7 and you can find it at https colon slash sonar with two r's dot tv thank you
0: so, have, did you have you messed with sonar at all john uh no Oh okay so I I've used radar before a little bit which is the essentially the same thing but for movies um it, it was a little more complex than I needed so I sort of left it behind but I I had messed with radar and sonar on my disk station cuz you can install them they're part of the Syno community uh group of packages uh that are available for for Synology so that if if you haven't added the Sino community stuff, we'll put a link in there. If you're a Synology person, it just makes life a lot easier. But there is a sonar package and um, and it's built to do exactly all the things that Zhang pointed out for us. So um, it's yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it, it's a fascinating world. That whole sonar radar Cody world is there's a lot to it. So, yeah, cool. You want to tell us right. uh, about James? Got a quick one from James. I've used ITV
1: shows for years. It's not ever on the bleeding edge of technology or UI paradigms, but it's done precisely what I need it to do for over six years. So I'm link to that. Thank you, James. Cool, cool, cool. Uh,
0: how about? Uh, so we've got we've got Sonar, we've got Channels DVR, we've got ITV shows. Uh, Dan. Dan, rec- Dan recommended one that I think a lot of, I know a lot of you recommended. Why don't you read uh, Dan's uh, opinions about uh, this next one? Yeah. So uh, Dan says, I have been using the website tracked.tv
1: for many years. I've been paying VIP also, but I don't find their ads too intrusive when I have let my membership lapse. They've been promising a mobile app since they've started, but they haven't delivered. I suppose it's more difficult than they imagined. There are third-party apps that will feed off their information and your account, but I haven't cared for any of them. I prefer simply using their website, and I mostly stay in the calendar where you can see what shows are coming up and check them off as you watch them. There are settings to fade or hide what you've watched also, and if there's a show that I wonder when it's coming back, you can search for it and see each season and each episode and the dates. I'm not sure that it has everything, but I use it for TV, Hulu, movies, and I see CBS Live Access and Netflix shows. The developers are very responsive. For years, I had trouble with the previous month arrow on the website calendar. One day, I emailed them that it seemed to be too close to the edge for my phone. It was fixed in a day, and I felt pretty stupid for waiting so long to ask them. Just thought I'd share. Can't wait to hear if there's anything better
0: out there, but I'm mostly happy with Tract. Cool. Awesome. All right. Uh, and you're on a roll, man. Why don't you read Ben's? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let me find Ben. Where are you, Ben?
1: Yeah, You got it? There he is. Okay. He's right about Dan. Okay. Easy recommendation from Ben. Television time. I've been using it for a couple of years now and it makes my life really simple. I can easily find shows I want to track and add them to my list, indicate the episodes I've watched and see when new episodes are upcoming. I can also discover popular, trending and anticipated shows as well as track my consumption. Television time uses the database maintained by, tracked.tv. By the way, if you're looking for a similar search and tracking of movies, I like to do movies.
0: Cool. All right. And to do movies. All right. Well, we'll put the we'll put all of it in the show notes. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, John, for reading all this. That's great. And one last one from Greg on this. Uh, He says, check out the iOS app. Just watch uh, for TV tracking as well. So we'll put all of this in the show notes. I've experimented with a few of these and we did make a change to how we're tracking things here. And believe it or not, we're using Apple TV. The TV app uh, works really well if you add stuff into it. We even have added in the shows that we would normally watch via TiVo just because it's really nice to see in one place where those episodes have come in. We can watch them. In the Apple TV app, because for the most part that links with all of the various networks and and services that uh, we that TiVo would record from, Uh, it's a little nicer usually to watch Anything TiVo has recorded from TiVo because shifting around and it is I mean, it's local data, right? So it's way there's no lag of the streaming or anything like that. So we tend to watch in TiVo, but then we can just tell it, oh, we've watched this episode in Apple TV and that part's manual. But, eh, you know, it's fine. The only thing for us that Apple TV won't track, of course, is our Netflix habits but that's okay. Netflix tracks them. So we basically have two apps that we use and it's been working out fine. And we didn't have to, you know, build a database of our own or, or, um, use a spreadsheet or anything like that. So it, it has been working. It's not perfect though. So I I still have it on my list to try out some of these that, that we just mentioned, John, have you, what do you use and have you made any changes to your, uh, viewing habits or anything like that?
1: Um, I mostly use the TiVo. Sometimes I will, um, uh, Apple TV. I also use yep. for a couple of, a couple of things. So, uh, so in the TiVo, I have Netflix and I have Plex running on that. Okay. And then also, you know, record off a of cable and then the Apple TV, I'll use that sometimes to run Plex or the, I like the client on the Apple TV better than on TiVo. um, but in the Apple TV, I'll run Netflix. I may run Netflix or uh, Plex. Or the other one is that um, one of the better stations I found. In that, if I miss a show for whatever reason, if the cable goes out or the scheduling gets confused, uh, the CW seems to make almost all of their stuff available going way, way back. Um, what I found is sometimes you can stream the most recent episode via the web. But they typically don't offer it way, way back. So um so I like the fact that they do that um for free. You don't yeah. even have to subscribe, I don't think. Of course it's ad supported. I mean that's you sure, you know. Yeah. Gotta get something. But um that's pretty much my media visual media consumption. That's how you uh, regimen.
0: Cool. cool. Uh speaking of ad supported, I want to talk about our next two sponsors. If that works for you, Mr. Braun. Okay. All right, look, it's 2020. Have you looked at your wireless bill lately? You're probably paying too much, right? Because network coverage is better than ever, no matter your wireless provider. So why pay more for the same service? That's where Mint Mobile comes from, right? Because they can cut your bill down to just 15 bucks a month for the same premium coverage. And I know you're thinking, well, this is too good to be true, but these guys know what they're doing. We've been using Mint Mobile here at Mac for over a year. I've tested it in all kinds of different places and it's been great. The speeds are killer. It's easy to set up. They support all the Apple features that I want, like, you know, visual voicemail and uh, everything, right? It's just like, it just works. And that's the beauty. Right. Because your old wireless bill pays for all those expensive retail stores and overhead. And so Mint Mobile just reimagined that and took that out of the equation and passes those savings along. That's their business model. That's how it works. Now, look, every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text plus crazy fast 4G LTE. You can use your own phone. You buy a plan that includes the amount of 4g lte that you want to use the amount of data that you want to use but right now for the next six weeks or so until the middle of may uh you can top that up for free because of everything that's going on here and that's pretty cool in mint mobile to let you do that but in general you're not paying for unlimited because we don't use unlimited we use a certain amount so why not just pay for that certain amount and save some money so here you go and if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile's got you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. So go check it out to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free. Go to mintmobile.com/mgg. That's mintmobile.com/mgg. Cut your wireless bill down to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/mgg and our thanks to Mint Mobile for sponsoring this episode. Our next sponsor is a tool I use all the time, especially nowadays, but I've always used it because I work at home all the time. And that's PDF pen because PDF pen 11 is the ultimate tool for editing PDFs on the Mac. So do you need to edit text in your documents? No problem. You can do that in PDF pen, including in tables. You can store graphics in PDF pens library that you commonly use. Plus, it has different shapes for drawing proofreading marks and stamps for marking documents is like red confidential. It supports Apple script so you can automate things. I know. And of course, it supports Mac OS Catalina and PDF pen for iPad and iPhone support iOS 13 and Apple pencil. Very cool stuff. You can redact things super easily in this. I, you know, talked recently on the show about how I had to redact some social security numbers from a tax document that I needed to send in for one of my kids college, you know, financial aid things. And uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, my social security numbers all over this. Wait, PDF pen. I launched PDF pen. I put it in find and redact mode. Five seconds. Done. That was it. Super simple. You can sign things, of course. You can do all kinds of things with this. All the things that you need to do when you're working digitally with PDFs. So go check it out. Go to smilesoftware.com podcast. That's where you go to learn more about PDF pen. Then you can set up your downloads and all that from there. Our thanks to Smile and PDF pen for sponsoring this episode. All right. We've got some quick tips, John. Sound good? Yes. All right. Quick tips. It is then let's go to let's start with Paul. Um, Two episodes ago, we were or three, maybe we were talking about quick look where you can hit the space bar, not just in the finder, but also in like file dialogues and things like that to see what a file is, the contents of a file, either the picture, if it's an image or, you know, the actually the contents, if it's a document, things like that. Paul adds, he says, an extension onto Seth's second quick tip about that. He says, after pressing the space bar in the finder to quick look at a file, you can use the arrow keys to get previews of the other files in that folder without opening and closing Quick Look. It just happens in the background. And this is like, I say this often. This is the perfect example of a quick tip because what Paul just described for us all here. Is something I do like probably 10 times a day, but I don't think about it and I've never thought to mention it on the show. So I'm so glad that Paul did because these are this is what a quick tip is. Those things that we when you know it, you just do it. It becomes part of your whole, you know, routine. And then you don't think to tell people about it. Thankfully, Paul thought to tell people about it. Right. So. Yeah, this is one of those things just once you're in Quick Look, start moving your cursor you know, with the arrows up and down and it will jump from file to file and you get to see the different Quick Looks of all the different files. It's super great. I like it. Handy, 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 especially if you're in a folder of like images or documents where the names are similar and you can tell by peeking in. There you go. So thank you, Paul. Good stuff. I know I shouldn't get that excited about a quick tip, but, you know, I do. It's good. Thoughts, Mr. Braun?
1: Yeah, I think I've i been in, uh, instinctively
0: done that as well. So, yeah, cool. right. Yeah, it's an instinctive thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it, we were talking in the last episode about VPNs and using it to using a VPN to troubleshoot uh, Internet issues. And in the last episode, we uh, we diagnosed correctly, although. We may not have been correct, but it turns out we were. But uh, as Craig will point out, there might have been another way. We were diagnosing an issue where uh, a user was having or a listener was having uh, problems connecting. But when they added a VPN to their connection, all their problems went away. We surmised that it was a DNS issue and that by connecting to the VPN, bypassing all the local DNS, it solved the problem. And it's true, that's exactly what happened. However, that's not always what a VPN is telling you, because as Craig pointed out, uh, let me say that, uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of where the best part is to get in here. Uh, He says, if everything is unreachable, that's another issue, but when not at all, VPNs can help. And he agrees that having a VPN as a troubleshooting tool is great. Because many slash most websites are located at hosting centers and whether those are owned or leased by the larger companies or rented space by smaller mid-sized companies, they all have one common characteristic. These hosting locations typically have multiple ISP carriers and may even have redundant high speed fiber connections to any one ISP. As we all know, between our devices and the websites are our local ISP network, regional regional, and national backbone networks and carrier exchanges. So there can be many problems along the way, not just DNS locally. And the beauty of using a VPN connection as a troubleshooting step is that it changes your network topology because instead of taking the path that you would normally take to that host, you go to the VPN and then you take their path in and that can be super helpful. So that could very well have been the issue that we were solving in the last show with or two shows ago with the VPNs, John. But it turns out in that one case, it wasn't. We did diagnose a a DNS issue, but we could very easily have also been diagnosing diagnosing some kind of topology issue. And I've certainly had that you know, where, where we host say Mac observer, there have been times, thankfully not all that frequent where there's some issue between me and the host and, or the hosting, you know, the backbone getting there, like when there's been some problems on the East coast and I can get to some servers in California, but not servers in Virginia and that sort of thing using something like express VPN. Uh, I could have kind of routed around and gotten to, um, you know, gotten to it that way. So it's, it's an interesting thing to think of a VPN as a uh, topology uh, troubleshooting tool. So I like it. That's good. You got to be able to get out to the internet without that. All bets are off. But once you're there, if you are having weirdness, it's a good little tool. So thank you, Craig, for, for shining the light on that. That's good. Thoughts on that, Mr. Braun. That is, of
1: course, if the VPN profile that you have is set to go to a DNS. Uh, just a quick tip here, if you're using OpenVPN on the Synology, typically what happens is that it creates a couple of configuration files, and if you want to put them on another thing like your iPhone, you drag those files over um, to the iPhone. Uh, here's the problem: is that i what I found is that they don't set the DNS, because when I tried to, to run uh, one of my configurations recently, it didn't connect to anything and then when i looked at logs it was like i can't resolve or it's like i I don't have a dns setting i'm like oh okay so you know had to uncomment that in the text file and say you know dns 1111 or whatever sure sure and then it worked yeah so um i think that's only specific to open vpn on synology so
0: yeah open vpn's a little weird but that's just how it goes yeah uh OK, let's go one more tip from Mark uh, in episode 806. he says uh, we were talking about using cell providers and things like that and we were talking in 806 I believe that's where we were talking about using, um, a, a, a cell connection as your backup internet connection and he says three out of four times when you discuss those uh, i'm yelling colorful metaphors because the answer to the questions are usually t-mobile he says because t-mobile announced an isp a while back um and uh it it comes with a little as he calls it a gizmo that uh that allows you to connect you know a a, a mobile internet connection to your um to your to your main thing you know and uh and and it becomes your your like it replaces your cable modem or your or your dsl or whatever it is um they have no data caps no price hikes so uh pretty cool and um I had no idea that T-Mobile had an ISP, which is interesting because with 5G coming around, that might well be, they might be kind of paving the way for that. So that's pretty good. It's pretty good. So anyway, he says he has, he's been using it and his services about 50 down or 10 up, which is way better than what he was getting with his rural ISP out there, uh, his wired ISP. So wireless ISP. So that's pretty good. T-Mobile ISP i like it who knew i guess uh i guess mark knew huh did you had you heard about this john uh no i had not okay um
1: there we go but there is something that i heard of because verizon messaged me okay the other day and you know with all all the stuff going on here um people using relatively more data because they're home all day or work from home and all that um Verizon sent me a message saying, we have added 15 gigs of data to your plan at no charge to use from 325 through 430. So check your messages or sign up for text messages from Verizon and yeah. uh, you can find out that you got
0: tons of data. So th- but that's not that's not an ISP. That's just on like a, a cell phone. Or no, something. that's the hotspot. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, got uh, it. yeah. OK, cool. All right. Um, I've found a couple of interesting things this week. Speaking of network topology. We went to watch a YouTube video on our Apple TV, and I got this message that I have seen before that said uh, something along the lines of content restricted. You need to log in with a G Suite account. And I'm like, what? Like, I watched this on my phone, logged into the same account. No, no, like, what's going on here? So I did a little bit of searching, and immediately people were talking about how this problem was happening. If they were using a um, like some kind of parental controls or content filter. And I thought, "Ooh, wait a minute. You know, I currently have my Synology router set up and I have different profiles for each member of the house. And then I have like an IOT profile that's a lot more locked down than the individual profiles for people. Because I can assign like my iPhone and my Macs and my kids Macs and all of that stuff. Uh, But the IOT stuff. I just kind of leave in a, you know, far more restricted uh, profile to block them from, you know, doing things they shouldn't be doing, because if one of them gets hacked, then, you know, I wouldn't necessarily know. Well, my Apple TV was sitting in that IOT profile. I moved it to my profile temporarily and boom. The problem went away. So if you've seen that content restricted to G suite account, you know, uh, issue, the solution is fix your parental controls, uh, because that or your content restrictions, because that may well be the issue. So, um, so there you go. Uh, interesting. I don't know. Have you ever run into that, John? No,
1: no, I don't watch, uh, I mostly watch YouTube on my, uh, well, I watch some YouTube stuff. No, I've, yeah. I've never gotten any sort of. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. I okay, think I've so gotten know. warnings sometimes that. Uh, <laughs> oh, I remember I got this the other day. You, you, someone had sent us a, a YouTube video. By the time I got to it, it said it had been removed uh, due to violation from so-and-so. And I'm like, who's so-and-so? Uh, so-and-so so is. Remember that, that song that we got? What song? Gary. Gary sent us a, a, okay. a funny video. Okay. Yeah, when I went to the, the link for that video, it said it had been pulled by and then the name of somebody. I didn't realize that that was one of the members
0: of the band who's... Uh,
1: ah, right. The parody was being done, and I guess they, they didn't like it, so...
0: And I think it was a parody of a Queen song, right? And so, yeah, yes. somebody somebody in Queen has is is the one that's assigned the rights on that. So they would get notification, and then they can either choose to leave it up or have it yanked, and they probably have an automated thing that just... Yeah, but doesn't parody kind of allowed i, I guess not uh, it depends right yeah i, I mean it, with the whole dmca thing it can't, it's a guilty until proven innocent scenario so mm-hmm. uh youtube will pull things down right away as most isps would and then and then you know if you want to uh you know file an appeal or whatever you can you can perhaps mm. and maybe that one would have made it maybe it wouldn't have i don't know but at the moment uh, that you checked it did not so yeah
1: yeah yeah i mean the thing is i searched on the name of the person and added the word like parody video and a whole bunch of other sources came up so it, it has spread sure so, yeah that uh, I, I doubt he'll the genie's out of the bottle in this case so.
0: yeah 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 right <laughs> Uh, I, another thing that I found this week, so I've been having a problem for, I'll say months. It might've been gone on longer than that. Every now and then my iCloud photos will stop syncing down to my Mac. I have one, the one Mac in my office is the one that's set to be, you know, download all originals so that I have a copy of all my originals here. And then of course I can clone that to whatever I want. And I'll notice that it'll be like months that it hasn't downloaded something because I don't mess around like on that machine all that often with photos. And so I dug, John. I, I used Activity Monitors um file, open files and ports thing. I looked it at it said it was, you know, still downloading from iCloud. So I filtered Activity Monitor by photo to get down to things that were there. And I just started looking. And Cloud Photos D is the process that for me was holding this up. And it might be an issue for some of you if you have the same type of files that I did. So I looked and it was hung up on a, a file that ended in dot GP. I forget what three GP stands for. Maybe John will be looking it up while I'm telling you this. But three um, GP files are video files from like old cell phones in, in the olden days. And evidently, I have some of these in my photos library. Now, these had all pulled down from iCloud because the only way that I ever um, I the only way I've solved this problem in the past is to just wipe out my photos library and let it slurp it down uh, from iCloud fresh so they can exist on iCloud and I can go find them and and watch them on iCloud. But uh, it did not. Uh, it, it would it seems to clog up the. Uh, The cloud photos D thing at some point in time. And I don't know what that point is, but it does. So I created a smart album and the smart album says, you know, file name ends in dot three GP. And it found these five photos or five videos. I exported them to my drive. Now, I exported them as raw videos uh, so that they were still in three GP format. I think I could have exported them as movies and converted them and solved this problem In that, you know, re-importing them back in. I then had to go. I deleted them from my photos library. Uh, I also went to iCloud uh, because you can see photos on the web now. And I deleted them from there so that I was sure to get them out of both locations. Now, at this point, I had to restart the cloud photos D process. You can do that by rebooting your Mac or you can do it by force quitting it in activity monitor and then it'll just relaunch. And at that point, Cloud Photos started crunching along and doing more work. And finally, it made it through. And now things are syncing. And I think my problem, that has been a recurring problem for a long time, is solved. So if you've got 3GP videos in your library, or if you've run into this problem before, where Cloud Photo or it, your iCloud Photo syncing has, you know, gotten gummed up this might be the issue uh, so take a look for those, uh, those 3GP photos or videos and I don't know it's crazy right crazy John Uh, not really what's 3GP did you look it up uh, third generation partnership project okay
1: sure and I found a little article uh, which may help here um, they suggest one thing that may work is changing the extension to M4 4 p in that it may have confused whatever codec they have that's trying to uh process the video but uh oh so so uh
0: not for mp4 i'm sorry but not converting but just changing it to mp4 and and letting it see it that way might help interesting huh
1: yeah, no, the line here, it says, uh, yeah, since they use the same codec, you have you may have luck renaming a 3GP or 3G2 to MP4. So, anyways, I'll, I'll post this article. Huh. Go
0: figure. Cool. Cool. Yeah, all right. Thanks. That's great. Huh. Huh. All right. Uh, okay. Moving on to a last sort of PSA slash tip from listener Thomas. Uh, Thomas... Was in a scenario where he felt the need to call nine one one. Thankfully, everything was okay. He said uh, he was in his car, and this part's relevant to the PSA. And uh, he was trying to call nine one one and waiting for you know the tone or nothing. And and dialed nine one one. He's driving. And finally, he looks down at his phone and it's waiting for him to pick which Bluetooth speaker to connect with before the call will be made to nine one one. So just be aware of that, that the iPhone will if it if it normally asks you which Bluetooth device to choose when you're in your car. Uh, that will also happen with 911. So, thank you for the heads up, Thomas. And I'm obviously glad that you're safe and it wasn't an, uh, the emergency that it may have been. So, it's good. That's good. That's good. I um, yeah, I've been bitten by that too. Okay. In a
1: different way. So, I have a Bluetooth uh, streaming doohickey in my car. And if I get too close to the part of the house that's close to the car, sometimes my phone will switch over to that. I think oh, it goes to sleep eventually. But um, yeah, because uh, one time, yeah, I made a call and, you know, I was like, hello, hello. And, you know, can you hear me? And, you know, the I was connected, but we, we weren't communicating. And then I looked at the audio selection and it was like, yeah, I'm, t-
0: uh, I'm connected to the car. Is that OK? And I'm like, no. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, I want to take a minute and thank a bunch of, but not probably not quite all of the folks whose premium contributions have come in for Mackie in the last, um, uh, couple of weeks here. And so on our, and all of this is available, of course, at Mackie slash premium. Uh, and you do get access to that premium at Mackie email address, plus the warm, fuzzy feeling that, uh, that you get from supporting your two favorite geeks. Uh, on the biannual plan at 25 bucks every six months, I'd like to thank Patrick from Shreveport, Bruce W., Matt from Midlovian, Eric from Trondheim, Doug S., Jeff S., Daniel from London, Mary from Monterey at $100, Ben from Sustainable Computing in Berkeley for $36, Corey from Kenmore, Michael from Naperville, Richard from Pontrug at 30 bucks, Jason from St. Louis, Michael from Troy, Norton from Bethesda, ed Ware from Crum. i might have that name wrong so if you are edward my apologies sir uh gerard from meridian jp from studio city at 50 bucks joel f craig s dan e john o tony g michael p paul from tunbridge wells gary from chicago richard from quakerton ronji john from Vevey at 60 dollars. greg from los angeles Robert from Oro Valley, Brian from Johnson City, Anthony from Ride, Joe B, Eric from Albuquerque and Drake from Honolulu. And then on the monthly $10 plan, i would like to thank Robert from Clearwater, Stephen from Costa Mesa, Everett from Marina, Olga from Bellevue, Gary from Babylon, Jason from Charlestown, Luann from Albuquerque, Ward from Mesa, Paul from Fishers and Mark from Milford. And lastly, some one time contributions that have come in. Joseph from Marietta, Jordan from Santa Barbara, uh, Joseph from Marietta at fifty dollars, Jordan at twenty five. Jay from Caledonia also at fifty. Eric from Brampton also at twenty five, and Mac Monkey Boy from Toronto at fifty. So thank you so much to all of you. Uh, as you know. That The whole thing works because it all works and you are a huge part of that. Our sponsors are a big part of that. And frankly, everybody that contributes questions and tips and cool stuff found, that's a part of this, too, because that's actually the biggest part is that. So it all works together and we really we're super appreciative. Uh, I know I say that all the time, but especially right now, we're super appreciative that we get to do this and we still get to do this and we basically get to do it in the way that we always have, which is awesome. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, John, we've got some Catalina stuff. Shall we dive in here? Mm hmm. OK, uh, Douglas Douglas is not the only one. Several people this week asked a very similar question that uh, Douglas. So he's acting as a proxy for all of you. He says recently you've mentioned a number of times that Catalina is designed mainly for SSDs. I have a 2017 27 inch iMac with a one terabyte fusion drive and I want to upgrade to Catalina. Would this be a problem? And do you recommend not doing it and staying with Mojave? I also have a four terabyte external spindle drive that I have partitioned and cloned each of my Macs as bootable backups using carbon copy cloner. I only boot from these clones in a pinch. Is it possible to create a bootable clone of Catalina uh, on this type of external drive? And finally, if I were to use an external SSD as my main boot drive for Catalina, how would this compare to using Catalina installed on my internal fusion drive? Uh, Okay, so, yeah, that's interesting. I I think a lot of folks are taking this, um, you know, at home time and downtime as the opportunity to, to do that. Uh, Catalina migration that maybe they've been holding off on for uh, for a little while because they've been busy or whatever. So because it like so much of this stuff has come in. Um, The main difference that we've seen between Mojave and Catalina on fusion drives is iCloud drive. If you are syncing documents and desktop that on a fusion drive or a spindle drive seems to cause a ton of extra disk access and really will slow down the finder. So if you're not syncing documents and desktop, you're our experience is you're going to be fine with Catalina on a fusion drive. But if you are, then you either want to stop syncing documents and desktop or uh, move to an SSD or something like that. Uh, any thoughts on that part of this, John, before we um, before we kind of plow through the rest of it? no'm I'm, I'm, I'm with you so far okay cool um so the 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 second part of this question well, let's talk about the s s d uh Booting from an SSD, that iMac has two Thunderbolt 3 ports, so you can use any of the external Thunderbolt 3 SSDs that we've been mentioning recently, or it, you know any of the other ones that we haven't yet mentioned. Um, they all support data transfers in that 2,000 m- and and greater megabyte per second range, so you're going to get lots of throughput out of those. Um, of course, you get the low, very very low latency of an SSD and all of that should work just fine so I would I, I would I would lean towards doing that if not right out of the gate certainly think about that down the road because that 2017 iMac still has well, I would say a lot of life in it so you know and it and it's not a portable machine in that booting from an external drive that's not that big of a deal so um, so I think you're okay on that any thoughts on that Mr. Braun before we move on
1: no I am uh yeah, last I checked, I am all SSD for both my internal drives and my uh, clone drives. Oh, nice! And I think I told you the other day I had to re- restore a very large file. So at first I was like, um, "I was like, I'll restore it from my CCC clone." And I was getting—it's a Sandisk, I think—a Sandisk SSD, okay. and and it's in a uh, USB three point something enclosure. But I was getting five hundred megabytes a second throughput. Oh, that's awesome! Because at first I was pulling the file down for my NAS and I and the th- and the it was like, you know, this is going to take an hour. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. Yeah. And the speed wasn't that great. Uh, that's something I, th- I still have to figure out. But I'm like, no, let me pull it off the clone. And it was like, yeah, I'm going to be done in
0: five minutes. It's like, wow, that's great. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. OK, it's good. I, on your NAS, though, um, check the, the next time you try to copy that file or if you have time and you just want to mess with it. Um, Launch resource monitor on the Synology and look at CPU usage mm. and disk usage mm. to see w- which one of those things is your bottleneck there. Because it could well, be this the was, CPU.
1: Well, this was the Drobo. And maybe uh, that's the problem. That <laughs> it, Drobo FS, which
0: was oh, not one of the their CPU. highest performing. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the CPU slowing you down. Because it, okay. it, it seems strange that file sharing would be a CPU hog. But in, in this case, it can be so
1: yeah okay an issue. now I'll, I'll i'll put them on the synology and uh yeah let me do that i'll, I'll do that as an exercise and see what kind of throughput i got in the see synology because yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah mine are pretty recent uh yeah fairly recent so they have some decent multi-core cpus right right at least
0: one of them does yeah all right all right uh what's was the next question here oh booting from the four terabyte external spindle drive can you boot catalina that way well Catalina can only boot from APFS drives, so it will uh, when you do a clone with carbon copy cloner, it will attempt to, but also force you to convert at least that it's going to try and convert just that partition. But um, things can get wonky with this, but it's got to be APFS. Otherwise, Catalina will not boot because it's doing the whole split volume thing and, and all of that. So. Uh, That part might or might not be an issue for you, depending on how you have that drive laid out. But be ready for that to potentially be an issue. And you might need to sort of carve out a separate drive or get a separate drive to use as your clone for your Catalina volumes until you've got everything on Catalina. And then and then obviously you can sort of get there with it. So just be aware of that. You might you might run into it. The, the, the final question that Douglas asked that I did not include in the first round is when listening, he said to episode seven ninety six with Mike Bombick, uh, who makes carbon copy cloner. Uh, he says you mentioned exercising your external drives, especially your spindle drives that aren't used all that often to avoid bit rot or something like it. My question is, what would be a good way of doing this, considering that these drives are not constantly connected to my computer. Um, you know, the so my Synology and your Synology has a feature called data scrubbing. And I highly recommend you turn it on. I realize I'm taking this in a different direction, uh, but I'll come back. Uh now you can actually have it schedule data scrubbing and you can do it every three months or six months or however often you want. I do mine on my main Synology every three months. Uh, just because I want to find out if there's, you know, bit rot happening and I want to, I want to catch it early, but it does scour through everything on the drive and it takes a while and it slows things down. In fact, we had to, I had to tell my Synology to ease off a little bit last night when we wanted to watch a movie because the file was on there and it was slowing down our ability to read the movie file. So uh, but once you can do that, I mean, it, it by default, it's actually fine. I had it set to be really aggressive and get it done fast. And I I overdid it, uh, evidently. So. That is that this that data scrubbing is for exactly this reason. Now, there is no sort of built in functionality on the Mac to do this. Um, you could do. I don't know. Like, that, I don't I don't know how I would do this, John, Um cloning yeah, this
1: dri- m- go ahead or i would say make a weekly or monthly task on your task list
0: but what would i the don't know task- if I'd do it weekly but, no i'd do it know? quarterly maybe but what would you do quarterly mm-hmm. like what i mean when you mount it like in order to have it read everything on the drive what do you like how would you do that uh, i don't know if i'd
1: read the entire drive i don't know you know plug it in maybe do a benchmark on it or something mm-hmm. I don't know if you have to, uh, I just think you want to have something happening um, on the drive.
0: Uh, I guess that's better than nothing. uh, Yeah. I got
1: to, I got to think about that. Cause yeah, I mean the, the data scrubbing on the Synology, I mean, that's, I mean, I think it's basically checking the integrity of the, the checksums and all that. And if it's, if it doesn't match, it rebuilds it. Um, Right. Where you really don't have. hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the point is you just want to have something happening with the drive. Okay uh on a regular basis yeah a year is probably too long monthly
0: maybe maybe monthly is about right yeah yeah if you well i know how i am if i scheduled it for monthly it would get done quarterly because it's just one of those things where you're like well I, i'm not going to do it today but i'll do it you know i know it needs to be done it'll be done soon so you know it's it's one of those things yeah
1: yeah because i actually had an ssd that i had in my pile of drives that i had not exercised and um well it's in the recycle bin now because it would not even mount at all. Oh. Maybe it's because I didn't exercise it. It was it was one of one of the older ones that I've had for a few years. But yeah, I'm like, what's is, is the enclosure broken? No. The drive was just gone. No, yeah. Nothing detected it. So that made yeah. me sad.
0: That is sad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how it goes. Yeah, is Kiwi Graham in uh in one of our chat rooms at live.com. Mackeep.com says make sure the spindle starts turning that's the main key so thank you Kiwi Graham good stuff uh, all right chris has an interesting thing it, this problem may be solved but i wanted to throw it out chris is a, a consultant goes around and helps lots of folks and small businesses and some large businesses with their computing i know we have a lot of you uh, that do that 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 listen to this show so i wanted to share chris's uh scenario here he says i've had several incidents of catalina data migration not and that is migration assistant not bringing over a hundred percent of user data thanks to backups i was able to rectify these situations without trouble one recent uh, on a recent episode of command control power podcast they also talked about this happening to them so to solve this or protect against it uh My migration path is, uh, first, with all new computers coming in the door, I now do a drive wipe and OS install, or OS imaging. Uh, I've seen enough quirky software behavior with brand new Macs out of the box in the last year that I have adopted a policy of wiping all systems that I am tasked with setting up. At least that way you know what you're starting with. That's fair. Uh, In my OS images, he says, Uh, I've seen a single and you know what? I agree with that, Chris, because I was just setting up that MacBook air that uh, was the loaner from Apple. And it was wonky trying to do migration out of the gate. I wound up wiping it and then everything was fine. So that's interesting. Uh, He says uh, in my OS images, I have a single user account set up. That's called Mac user. And I always use the same password for it. Uh, If I do an OS install instead, I still set up this user account, um, one of the reasons being is that it doing a mig- it's been shown that doing a migration right after the o- the initial OS install, so as part of the install, is not as reliable as doing the install, setting up a user account, and then starting migration. Fair, okay. Uh, and he says at the same time I'm prepping a new machine. I have a clone backup of the old Mac in progress with the source Mac booted to one of my consulting drives. Even if the source Mac has a backup already, I'm taking the precaution of making my own make sense. Uh, it says, then I run disk repair. Then I run migration assistant. After the migration, I reboot the new system before logging into any user accounts. I boot this new system to my consulting drive. I run carbon copy cloner and I set the clone source as the user's home folder on the old computer. So this is after migration assistant. Running carbon copy cloner, this is the key to this, setting the clone source as the user's home folder on the old computer and the destination as their home folder on the new computer. Very interesting. He also checks to see if they have more than one user folder or any data in the shared folder. If he does, then he does the whole user's folder, not just the individual user folder. But this is interesting. So do migration assistant and then clone from the old drive to the new one to catch anything that has not made it through migration assistant. Um, He said, then he boots it up normally and sets the permissions and kind of moves forward from there. But this is a, this is interesting. So I'm curious. He says that this may have been solved in a recent update to Mac OS, which includes an update to migration assistant. So it may be catching those things that it wasn't catching before, but that's not a bad idea to do that carbon copy cloner uh, clone of just the user folder just to make sure that you've got everything. I kind of like that as a safety net. I don't know. What do you think, man?
1: Um, I've been okay with uh, Migration Assistant.
0: Okay. Uh, you haven't found anything. Yeah, and, and I think
1: for the most part, the yeah, when you're, I think you select the Documents folder and that's basically it's yeah doing the home folder so
0: having another backup of that yeah that makes sense it makes sense yeah i kind of like it i mean especially if he's you know i mean it's one thing for us doing it with our own machines but but he's tasked with making sure that that data gets over there that's you know doing that second pass that's smart i asked him what he was finding in there and he said it was you know some sometimes documents files sometimes preferences but like i said he thinks he hasn't it's gotten better as of late so perhaps Mm -hmm. uh whatever migration assistant was missing is no longer missing so cool you want to uh you want to tell us peter yes all right peter has a good one and you have something
1: to add here dave Mm -hmm. but uh, uh i did a deep dive if you will on this um my MacBook Pro updated to Mac OS 10.15.4 last night and I was greeted this morning by a flurry of dialogues informing me that several extensions would no longer work in a future version. And he links to an Apple support article that goes into a bit of detail about this, but not enough, I would say. Um, my problem is that for, the most, for most of them, the developer name didn't help me identify specifically which extensions are affected. Do you have any suggestions as how to identify the extensions so I can start future-proofing my system? Okay, so the first thing to do, and I did this when I got this, is I made a screenshot of each of the dialogues. Um, And I got three of them when I applied the update. And it said, existing software in your system loaded a system extension signed by, and then that's the company. And I had three, Malwarebytes Corporation, Objective Development, Software GmbH, and Logitech. Okay. here 's the tool that you 're going to want to use with a uh, strategic sorting to find this out so uh, run system information uh, apple menu and hold down option and check out the software extensions section um, and there's going to be a number of columns there um, from is who makes it and there's basically two values well maybe three um, apple which doesn't it doesn't concern apple extensions but then you're going to see uh, identified developer I believe is the uh, classification those are the ones that you're going to um you're going to want to look at because that's where these are going to be or at least all of them were in my case um the other thing you'll notice is that the apple ones are in system library extensions um the other thing but, but then once you resort the list here looking through it now fortunately all the ones that i had were pretty easy so uh one i found was mb underscore mbm underscore protection malware bytes MB. Okay, that's cool. Um, Now, if you highlight that, you're gonna see a number of uh, entries for that extension. Here's what you wanna look at, signed by. So everybody has to sign their extensions. And signed by is gonna tell you the name of the company. But in addition, you're also gonna see the path of the extension. So like in the case of this one, it was in library, application support, malware bytes, mbam, kx, uh, mb.kext. Um, Now, that's weird because I didn't know you could even put an extension, a kernel extension in application support, but that's where that one is. Um, And then I did similar with um, objective development. If you don't know, objective development is the maker of Little Snitch. And that one was, uh, and it was listed as Little Snitch. Okay, that's cool. And of course, the signer is objective development sure uh, that's also that's in library slash library slash extensions if you want a place to look for potential violators and then the last one was logitech and also they they named it right so there, it was logitech h i d devices uh and logitech unifying and those were in library extensions uh library extensions as well okay so I think that rounds it out. Now, you, I think you have some input, Dave, here because you, you talked about this on a TDO a while back, and there, uh, you could probably guess the the uh, so the class of things that may get legacied are things that l- look at the file stream, which is what Malwarebytes does, or right. look at the network stream, which is what Little Snitch does. And I'm not sure which one of the Logitech ones why they identified uh-huh. them. I suppose they in inter- a inter- interrupted
0: data stream as well. Well, no, Apple has interact with one. Yeah, it not all kernel extensions are deprecated yet, but they probably all will be eventually. But right now, so in Catalina, it deprecated means they will still work. You shouldn't build anything new with them, and they will likely not work in the future. And then, of course, the messages that we saw with ten point fifteen point four are indicating that ten point sixteen is where these will not work. Right. And Apple's article about this talks about a few different types, the few different types of kernel extensions that are affected. Anything touching the network filter, um, they can and there and there are new things that these developers can use called system extensions. So we're going from texts to sexts. Yep, that's right. <laughs> we're all developers are sexting now. So uh <laughs> network filter is is one of the ones that is being Closed off everything in the uh, IO USB family or IO HID, the human interface family. So, all of those devices that are keyboards, mice, all of that stuff that require extra drivers, no. You can't do that with a system wide kernel extension anymore. Again, there's other things, USB driver kit or HID driver kit that are less low level, but still get the job done. They just need to rewrite it. But it also includes USB networking and those sorts of things, too. Uh, So it's basically USB stuff and network stuff that is uh, being impacted by this change. To be very specific, one thing that's not being impacted by this change are drive related, storage related kernel extensions. Those are still allowed um, at the moment and presumably with 10.16. They have not been deprecated at all nor is there any flag that um, that anybody should change yet. But <clears throat> it wouldn't surprise me if eventually we are we do get there. But but yeah, these are these are sort of the common ones that that sh- and should be there are there is a different path for these to be taken and developers need to take that path and now based on what you just told us John we get to know which developers take that path so yeah yeah it's good Um, one other thing I'll throw out since we're we're merging the combination the discussion of these kernel extensions as well as in with the discussion of migration assistant and Catalina I'll refer us back to Mac Geekab 778 When I first did a migration assistant with Catalina and realized that I did not get the ability to approve all those kernel extensions. And I ran into it again uh, when I was migrating to this MacBook Air. Right. It like it migrates them over, but it doesn't turn them on because I haven't given that machine permission to run them. And it doesn't ask me for permission to run them because they're already flagged as having been asked from the old machine. So there's a disconnect there. You got to run two terminal commands. At least I think you need to run two. You might only need to run the second one. But I run both and we'll put them in the show notes. It's a uh, text cl- cache clear staging and then text cache dash I and you point it at the drive that wipes out and you don't have to try and remember them here they're just they're in the show notes at macgeekab.com copy and paste them into the terminal you're good to go uh when you run that second one it will start popping up those dialogues that you see when you first install these kernel extensions it wipes out any memory of having asked you about them and then you can go to system preferences security and privacy general and approve them or deny them if you choose but the point would be to approve them and uh and actually get them running again. So that like things like we love Intel power gadget that won't work. If you copy it, if you migrate it over until you do this and then it works just fine. So yeah, there you go. Yeah.
1: I found that. Thank you.
0: You're, you're welcome. Yeah, no, it's a handy thing. I keep this in my, in my little uh, bag of tricks. You know, I have like a little Evernote folder of uh, tech tips and this is one that I keep there because ever since I found it and we talked about it in 778 back in September, um, you know that it, it's been like I have to run it every time because otherwise it doesn't work. So yeah, hmm. crazy, crazy, crazy. All right, and then uh, I think we got time to wrap up this segment uh, with a little PSA from Irving. I don't know how many people this will affect, but it's worth mentioning. He says I just started updating my three macOS systems to Catalina ten point fifteen point four, which is what came out recently. My major system is an iMac with six external Lissi disk drives. These drives are all attached through a Firewire 800 daisy chain during the somewhat lengthy installation. All of these Lissi drives were being frequently accessed by the installation software. Two of the drives were mounted and four were unmounted when the software update started. When the installation finished, several of the drives were no longer mountable and all required running disk repair to get them to mount. So, my recommendation is that all external disk drives should be disc- disconnected when installing 10.15.4. I will admit that 10.15.4 is now installed and working perfectly, but it dis- did cause this uh, considerable frustration, and I wish I had known to unplug the FireWire connection to my external disk drives before starting the update. It's not a bad idea uh, if you've got external drives connected to to punt them when you're doing a system update that way you know you're updating the right drive it's not going to go scouring it'll probably go faster if uh if the installer is doing something to these drives so not a bad not a bad thing yeah so thank you for that irving good stuff yeah anything else mr braun yeah
1: i gotta remember to do that i've been doing some installations and fiddling with the the new mac mini here but um I have uh, my clone drive. And, of course, when you reboot the system, it's going to mount the clone drive. Um, sure. I had a, more than one situation where I tried to launch an app from a Spotlight. Yeah. And it chose the version that was on <laughs> that drive, the, the external drive instead of the internal. So uh, eject unnecessary drives is a, is a good suggestion.
0: Yeah. Well, not just eject, because his were ejected. Like, you need to disconnect, like power down or, oh. or like, yeah, air gap okay. them. Yeah, it was Mm -hmm. his advice, but you bring up a good thing like carbon copy cloner and super duper are smart because you can tell them to eject your clone after it finishes doing the clone. But when you Mm -hmm. boot your Mac until it does that first clone, it doesn't know to eject that drive. So I wrote a little automator um, uh, thing that uh, that ejects the disk and I just put it in my in my startup so that it'll eject it'll mount the drive because it's always going to mount it it's a pain in the neck to try and get it to not mount it uh but i just let it mount it and then it runs this little automator action that um or automator application i should say that that you know ejects the drive and Mm -hmm. and then and then you know my clone app can mount it no problem and it mounts it and does it and ejects it and then it's not getting messed with the spotlight or any of those things so there you go if you want a screenshot for that ask me i can send it to your i'll i can i post it in our forums actually at mac slash forums so mm-hmm. yep yeah. all right well that's what we got i think we uh i think we we made it through um i got the music everything's good it's all we made it john <sighs> all right well thank you for listening if you have your stuff to send in, feedback at matgeab.com is where we would uh, we would like you to send it.
1: I didn't see that right. Did you oh hear you right? Did you say feedback
0: at MacGeekab.com? I said feedback at MacGeekab.com. Unless you're a premium listener, like we mentioned, and then premium at is for you. Uh, those reviews, we would love those five-star reviews. Let's just keep on rolling with that. So MacGeekab.com. Slash reviews is the closest we can get you. So there you go. Go check that out and sign up for our newsletter while you're there because that's, it, you know, it helps. It, it Well, it helps you. It allows us to get the show notes to you. That's that's good. Uh, thanks to everybody. listened. thanks to everybody for all your help uh, with all our video setup and all that crazy stuff. Uh, it's a team effort, as you all know, and we really appreciate it. It's iterating every single week and it's good. Thanks to CashFly for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Of course, the ones we mentioned in this episode, um, mintmobile.com slash mgg, mailroot.net slash mgg, and of course, smilesoftware.com slash podcast. You all rock. Uh, our sponsors in the podcast marketplace, like Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com, Barebones Software at barebones.com, Eero at Eero.com slash MGG. Linode at Linode.com slash MGG. It's all good, right, John? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we made it all the way through. Almost all the way through. John, any uh, three words you might have to share with all these folks?
1: You know, I'm I'm gonna modify it a bit in these trying times here. And I'm gonna say, Dave, that the three words are don't go
0: out. <laughs> that is a good way to avoid getting caught, my friend. I like it. <laughs> Maybe.